Well, it's nice to be back. Good to see you again. We had the Sunday school uh, time together, so that was a pretty good uh, percentage of the folks who are here. So this is a bit of a continuation of that. I did some introduction in that early service or this Sunday school hour that I'm not going to do today. So we're just going to jump into Jeremiah chapter 7. Now tonight, uh, we'll make a little more progress. Um, I mentioned this morning, Jeremiah is the biggest book in the Bible. You hear what I'm saying? Biggest book in the Bible. Now, somebody's thinking, what about the Psalms? Psalms have to be bigger. No, the Psalms have more chapters. But in in terms of word count, Jeremiah is the biggest book, longest book uh, in the Bible. So we have our work cut out for us over a few hours to try to to do it justice. Um, So we're going to just one chapter this morning. We did chapter one in the earlier time. We're going to do chapter seven in this service. Then tonight we'll make a little cover a little more ground in the two, about two hours that we have tonight. But to Jeremiah 7 this morning. This is one of the pivotal moments in Jeremiah's life and ministry. He was called to be a prophet at the age of 23, and his prophetic ministry is going to cover about 40 years. And what we get in the book of Jeremiah is like an anthology of his life and ministry. It doesn't work chronologically. There's sort of some general chronology, but it really doesn't work like... You know, from the beginning and his call all the way to the end, and it just moves forward along a timeline. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes, for example, the temple sermon that I'm about to talk about is in Jeremiah 7. I think that same temple sermon is repeated in chapter 26. And, And you'll get a king that you think, well, he's dead, he's gone, and then he'll show up later. And so it, it's, it's going to be a little tough to follow just chronologically. So we, we sort of have to focus in on what's the oracle at the moment and what's going on at that particular point in time. In Jeremiah 7, it's one of those pivotal moments in anybody's life and career where you've sort of reached the summit here. God tells Jeremiah to go to the temple. And he's going to preach a temple sermon, his great temple sermon. Now you've got to know how important that location is for Israelites. The temple was the the place on earth where you knew beyond a shadow of of a doubt you could access the presence of God. It was the one place on earth. You want to think about there are thin places in our lives where it feels like heaven and earth almost meet, where, where you just feel closer to God, uh, in some traditions, they refer to that as thin places. Um, maybe there are places in Kentucky that are that for me. If I could be back in southeastern Kentucky in the fall when the leaves are changing, back where I grew up, that, that's one of those. I was able to do that a year ago last November. I did something at the college where I graduated, and it was in the fall. It was in early November, and it, it's just one of those places where you feel like you're close to heaven. You, you, know, one of the, you know that kind of place? That's what the temple was for Israelites. They didn't have a hundred different locations. They knew they could go to the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where God's presence could be accessed. It was the thinnest place on earth between heaven and earth. So you had the presence of God that dwelt there. But it was more than that. It was also the place where sacrifices were made. This is where animals were slaughtered and their blood was sprinkled. This is where the high priest went in once a year into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood. And this was the place then of atonement. This was the place where people's sins could be dealt with. Now you think about how significant that is in someone's life. 
So the temple was the center of Jewish life and faith. In ways, there is no location on earth that is like that for Christians. You might love your church. You might really appreciate this location where this church uh, is, it sits. But it's not the same. You don't come to this place believing this is the only place I can access God's presence. We now live in a time when God's presence dwells with us through His Spirit. So when we come into this place, God's presence is with us. When we leave this place, God's presence is with us. There's no location like it. And that's where Jeremiah goes and delivers his temple sermon. So you got to know this is the place where they feel most secure. This is the place where they go when nothing else makes sense. And that's where Jeremiah goes. In, in Jeremiah 7, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the immigrant, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So this is about where's your security? What do you trust? Israelites tended to trust in the temple and the God of the temple, but the temple. This was a place of safety for them. It was a mark of their identity, but they had others. The law functioned like that for them. They knew they were all right as long as they said, we have the law of God. I'll call your attention. Look ahead to just chapter 8, the next chapter, verse 8, just, just to, to get a sense here of what Jeremiah is dealing with. In, in the next chapter over, Jeremiah 8, 8, he says to them, How can you say we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? Now, we've already talked about the temple, and it's important. That's one of the things they found security in. How about the law? Well, now he says, well, you say you have the law, but you don't keep it. Your scribes, the people who are sort of the interpreters of it for you, they lie about it. And you're violating God's law. You claim to have it, and yet you're living in violation of it. So there's two of their distinctive marks. Now look at chapter 9, the next chapter, after 8, and then verse 25. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Now, now what's that third sort of badge of Jewish identity? You've got the temple, you've got the law, and you've got circumcision. They sort of had this sense that if you're a male and you're circumcised on the eighth day or circumcised at any time in your life, if you've had the, you know, foreskin cut, then you're part of the people of God. You can rest in that. You can trust in that. 
And here's Jeremiah saying to them, that physical circumcision you have, big deal. Other nations can circumcise, and they did, not to the extent, it wasn't as important in their culture as it was in Jewish culture, but Jews weren't the only ones who practiced circumcision. And you'll notice the list of nations, he says, when he, when he, when he calls them out there. He says, verse 26, Egypt, Judah, Edom. He doesn't even put Judah at the front of the list. They're just one of these other nations who claims circumcision as if that matters. Now, what has Jeremiah just done in these three chapters? He's taken their three badges of identity, their three security markers. And he said, you say you have the temple? Well, I've got more to say about that. You claim to have the law, but you don't keep it. You claim you're circumcised, but circumcision of the flesh is meaningless. What matters is circumcision of the heart, that you've cut away the deadness in your life and in your heart. That's the circumcision that matters. If all you can claim is physical circumcision, well, then line up with the other nations. And he doesn't even put them at the head of the list. Back to Jeremiah chapter 7. This is about security and what you trust in. I mean, some people might not have been that willing to shake your hand this morning. You know what I'm saying? Because we're supposed to be doing the coronavirus handshake. Now, I've shaken anybody's hand who offered it to me this morning, uh, but I've also got some Purell with me. And um, I think we feel like, okay, you know, this coronavirus is a little scary, but, you know, if I've got my Lysol wipes and I've got my Purell and I wash my hands, it'll all be all right. And it probably will. But if your security is in Purell and Lysol wipes, good luck with that. And you think uh, all the threats to human life, and you think about the things we trust in to provide security. And my word to all that is, good luck with that. You ever go into board an airplane, and you're going through the security, and you think, oh yeah, oh yeah, these people are going to be able to catch anyone or anything that might bring down this plane. I feel completely secure. Not me. I'm thinking, man, I bet there's a hundred ways somebody could get something on this plane to cause it a lot of problems. If I'm trusting in the TSA or, or whatever for my security I've got my trust in the wrong thing where's your security what are you really trusting well here's what Jeremiah says this is what the Lord Almighty says verse 3 reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place here's a warning there's no guarantee God's going to let you stay in this temple there's no guarantee God's going to let you remain in this land. If you look back to, uh, or look ahead to chap, uh, same chapter, verse 7, he says, that then, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors. This is not only about the temple now. This is also about the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. There's a warning here that you could be expelled from the temple and you could be carried out of this land that God gave to Abraham. Yes, God gave it to Abraham and his descendants by, great, by grace, but it still belonged to God. He's still the divine landlord of that nation. 
And so he's chipping away at their sense of security. So you say, we've got the temple. Well, you could be expelled from the temple. God could remove you from the temple or God could remove the temple. So it's a warning to people who have their security in that place. He says in verse 4, Do not trust in deceptive words that say, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's that threefold repetition there is, The Lord's presence is there. It's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah says it might not always be there. You better not trust in that location as a place where you can always go and access God's presence. As the place that you can always go and be safe because God's presence is there. He's chipping away at their false sense of security. God is not bound to that physical location, to that temple. <clears throat> and then jump ahead to verse 15. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. So warning one was, you can't trust in the temple. You could be expelled from there. Warning two is, God is not bound to that temple. And warning three is, you could be expelled from God's presence if you continue to break his covenant and be in violation of his law. Now you think about standing at the temple and preaching that sermon. Owen, I don't know the harshest sermon you've ever preached, the, the maddest this congregation's ever been at you because of something you said in a sermon. It couldn't come close to Jeremiah standing in the temple and saying, you could be expelled from here and you shouldn't count on God's presence always dwelling in this place. And he could remove you from his very presence. You can almost feel the tension building. He calls on them to change their ways. If you change your ways, your actions, if you deal with others justly, if you do not oppress the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, do not shed innocent blood, if you do not follow other gods. I mean, he's nailing the things that the prophets are always talking about. They're always hammering the people for their idolatry. There's spiritual adultery. That worshiping another God is like cheating, in, in, a, in a manner of speaking, it's like cheating on your husband or wife. Because God is, in a sense, your husband, and we are his bride. So when you worship something other than God, it's like spiritual adultery. He says way back there in chapter 2, we'll see it tonight. He said, you're so ready to worship other gods, he says, you're like a she-camel in heat. That's what he calls them. You're that ready to worship other gods. It's like you're in heat to commit idolatry. So that's one of the things. And he says, if you will not follow other gods. The other is justice issues. How we treat the least among us. Are we willing to advocate for the immigrant and the orphan and the widow the the most vulnerable among us these are the issues he says if you'll reform your ways if you'll do these things that matter to me then i will let you live in this place that i gave your ancestors look at verse 9 will you steal and murder commit adultery and lie burn incense to baal and follow other gods that you've not known now, in that little 
passage there, he's hit about five of the Ten Commandments. Idolatry, that's number one, that's the big one. And then he hits about six, numbers six through nine of the Ten Commandments. He's accusing them of running to the temple as if that's your place of security, and yet you're doing all these things in violation of God's covenant. Verse 10, And then you come here and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and you say, We're safe, safe to do all the detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And there it is. You've been living a life that is in direct violation of everything you agreed to. That you would worship me and me only. That you wouldn't commit adultery. That you wouldn't lie. That you wouldn't steal. That you wouldn't murder. And yet you're doing all those things. And then you run to the temple like it's a storm shelter. Now, People in Moore, Oklahoma, understand storm shelters better than anybody maybe in the world. You get that. You know how much security you feel if you've got a storm shelter. If you know there's a place you can go when the storm is coming and you'll be safe from the storm. Gives you a lot of peace of mind, doesn't it? Well, that's how they felt about the temple. They could run there, they knew God's presence dwelt there, so they could do whatever they wanted, violate God's law, live any way they chose. But then they could run to the temple and know they'd be safe there. And God says, not so fast. You have made this place a den of robbers. Does that ring a bell? Can you remember another prophet who quotes that line, you've made this place a den of robbers? How about Jesus? In his temple sermon, it's Passion Week. He rides in on a colt on Sunday. He looks around. He decides to go back to Bethany for the night. But he'd been to the temple. He looked around. He didn't like what he saw, but he went back to Bethany for the night. The next morning, he's coming back to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree in leaf. Do you remember what he did to the fig tree? Pulled the leaves apart. There was no fruit there. He knew there was no fruit there. He wasn't surprised by that. It wasn't the season for figs, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 11. So what did he do to that fig tree? He cursed it. They saw it. They're thinking, wow, he must have really been hungry. Curse a fig tree because it didn't have fruit. Walks into the temple, and what does he find? People abusing uh, the moment. It's Passover. They've got to have animals for sacrifice. They've got to have coins without Caesar's image on it to pay their temple tax. And in that outer court, the court of the Gentiles, they've got all these tables set up so they can exchange coins and sell animals all to their financial advantage. And Jesus walks into that place and he looks around and he says, My house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. My house. Here's Yahweh referring to the temple as my house. There's Jesus standing in the temple saying, my house. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
Even Gentiles were supposed to find in the temple a house of prayer. But you've cluttered it so much with your commerce, they can't even get in here. And you're taking advantage of, of ever, these Israelites who are coming to celebrate Passover. And so Jesus starts turning over the tables. My house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but what? You've made it a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, 11. You think, you think Jesus knew that was Jeremiah's temple sermon he was quoting? I think that'd be as familiar to his audience as for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son would be for us. Everybody in the hearing of Jesus' words would know he just quoted Jeremiah's temple sermon. And they knew what that meant. Look at what Jeremiah says after he says you've made it a den of robbers. Verse 12. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence as I did all your fellow, the fellow, your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Now Shiloh's not nearly as well known to us as the temple in Jerusalem is, but that's where they had worshipped. You go back to the period of the judges, Shiloh was the place of worship. That's where the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. You know that kind of dangerous Ark where the tablet with the Ten Commandments was, uh, Aaron's staff or rod that budded, you remember, that was there, and a golden pot that had some of the manna that fell from heaven was kept there. And this was the place where the Israelites had worshipped before there was a temple in Jerusalem. But you remember the Philistines captured that ark and had carried it away. Now they got it back, but it never returned to Shiloh. And not long after that, Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines, about 400 years before Jeremiah spoke those words. And so now, standing in that temple, that most holy site to Israelites, he says, God's going to tear this place down just like he did Shiloh. Can you almost hear the, <gasps> what did he say? What do you think is going to happen to a prophet that says things like that? He's going to end up getting beaten. He's going to end up getting thrown into prison. He's going to end up being hated, even by his friends. All because he's doing exactly what God told him to do. What was the, what was the message there? Well, think about when Jesus quotes that. Why is he quoting it? He's saying that temple, the temple that was rebuilt after the temple Jeremiah was standing in was torn down in 586. They'd rebuilt that temple in 515 B.C. So now Jesus is standing in the second temple and he's saying it's going to be torn down. And then they leave. And then the next day Jesus and the disciples are coming back to Jerusalem and you know what Peter notices the first thing? Look, the fig tree you cursed is withered that fig tree image bounds the temple scene it lets us know what the temple scene was all about Jesus was cursing the temple because it was not doing what God had created it to do be a house of prayer for all nations 
Why did he curse the fig tree? Because it wasn't bearing figs. And that's what it was made to do. Unproductive entities in the kingdom of God are always judged harshly. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Hear the words of John the Baptist, a fiery preacher in his own right. Not just Jeremiah. John the Baptist has some fire in his bones. Look at verse 9. Well, let's just start. How about we start at verse 7? But when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, skip ahead just a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 7. That's John the Baptist. Now hear the words of Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 16. By their fruit you will know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, but a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize or you will know them. And you might already be thinking about John chapter 15 where Jesus talks about we are the branches and he is the vine and if we're connected to him, we'll bear fruit. But if we're not connected to him, that branch will dry up. It will not bear fruit. And what does he say will happen to that branch? It will be chopped off and thrown into the fire to be burned. Unproductive entities in the kingdom of God always face harsh judgment. And at this moment, that temple in Jerusalem was unproductive. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but they'd made it a den of robbers. And in 586, the Babylonians charged into Jerusalem and tore that temple down, just like Jeremiah said it would happen. And then there's Jesus in his temple sermon, quoting from Jeremiah's, and about 40 years after he spoke those words. The Romans rode into Jerusalem and tore down that temple. It calls us to examine our lives, to ask at least two questions. What is my security? In what am I basing my security? What is the thing that keeps me grounded? What gives me hope from day to day? What keeps me getting up when it's tough? When life is hard, where is my security? Where is my hope? In Christ and Christ alone. Not in circumcision. Not in the law. Not in some physical location that you can go and think, well, God won't. Get me here, like a storm shelter, spiritually. Where's my security? And where's the fruit? 
That's the hard question. Where's the fruit? If I'm connected to the vine, I will produce fruit. Now, it might not be some, not everybody's as visible as somebody else's. Some people's gifts are a little more behind the scenes than others. I can't know all the fruit that someone might be producing, but there will be fruit. And what's the judgment upon those who bear no fruit? It's harsh. The lack of fruit is evidence of no connection to the vine. The lack of fruit is evidence that you're trusting in all the wrong things. So what are you trusting in today? Purell? Lysol wipes? This kind of handshake? Good luck with that. You go see the doctor. You get a diagnosis that you didn't want to hear. What are you trusting? You should do everything the doctor says you should do but is that what you're going to trust in finally where's the fruit our father i pray that these words that jeremiah spoke standing in that temple around 600 bc the very words that jesus quoted Some 600 years later, I pray that as we stand here now, 2,600 years later, these living words would speak to us again today. May our trust and our hope be in you and you alone, and may we bear much fruit. In the name of Christ, amen.